while I get myself set up here. Um, I've just gone old school and brought a watch. I was in, uh, in uh, I had the privilege of going to Carrig Fergus Vineyard last, not last, not Friday night past, Friday night before. And uh, while I was there, I normally use a wee timer on my phone to tell me when to stop talking. My timer stopped working. <laughs> And then I was checking out the podcast this week, just to put up the podcast. Apparently, I did 50 minutes. Oh, I'm not going to do that this morning, I promise. So, and I talk about Jason and give off about him when he goes over 45. So there you go, that's a confession this morning. And um, I've got my watch. So hopefully I can try and keep on track and on schedule this morning. Um, would it be okay if we prayed before I began this morning? Before I begin? Yeah. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that that you did not leave us without instruction or wisdom in how to live our lives. Father, I thank you that you you didn't leave us without the living word who is Jesus and is found on these pages so that we would first of all know more about you and this this great... um, God that you are, that longs for relationship with us. So, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is truth. I thank you that it is God-breathed, God-ordained, that, God, you yourself are all over these words and all over this book, and I thank you for it. Amen. Have we had a good week? That would have been fun. Just about to break a mirror. That wouldn't be good, would it? Anyway. Um, no, it wouldn't be bad luck, Jason. I'm not superstitious. Thank you. Cheeky boy that you are. You're not allowed to heckle today. <laughs> no, you, no, definitely you are not allowed to heckle, Annette Malin. <laughs> this is what I get for spending years heckling. I get people take their revenge on me. Um, so this week, I've been thinking a lot about India, um, and there's not, that's not a surprise for any of you who know me or have heard me talking um, before, but um, we had the Regenerate lunch uh, at Bob and Bert's on Thursday night. If you don't know what Regenerate is, there's some flyers down the back, some, some wee brochures that can explain exactly what it is. I don't have time this morning to do that, but if you want to know more about it, and uh, Vineyard Church and Gallons work in India, there's some brochures down the back, you can take them with you. Um, well, as well as Regenerate, sort of uh, bringing back all these memories of India, Facebook helpfully brought up some memories for me this, this week as well, which is fantastic from a, a trip I went on six years ago in May 2011. And as I flicked through the photographs, it was like the sights and the sounds and the smells, and if you've ever been to India, definitely the smells, the beautiful ones and the not-so-beautiful ones, all came flooding back. And um, I vividly began to remember some of the people. It wasn't just the the sights and the sounds, but I began to remember some of the people that I met, some of the people that I encountered um, while I was there. And I I began to think about my first trip back in November 2009. And on our second day there, we had flown overnight. We had arrived, and then the next day, we had done an overnight train journey. And Sally Ann, Dickie, and I were chatting about this the other night. That was one hairy, scary first night experience in India. Um, And then the very next day, we arrived in this... um, village in the middle of nowhere um, and we met some amazing women there and we got the privilege in the afternoon 
to sit in a tiny wee room and meet three women who had been rescued from enforced prostitution. And we got to sit with them in this tiny wee room and hear their stories. And it was one of the most surreal experiences in my life. Because I was still reeling from the culture shock of arriving in this brand new country that was just like feeling like you'd arrived on a different planet. It's so different from here. And then the next thing I'm sitting here and I'm listening to these three beautiful young, young women tell their stories, each of them so individual, but talking about how they ended up in, in enforced prostitution. And then telling us the stories of how they, they came to be freed. And it was only just before that trip in 2009 that I really began to learn about that there was even such a thing as slavery in today's world. Um, I don't know about you when you first heard about it, but now it's quite a common thing, isn't it? Most of us know that there are modern-day slaves in the world, and it's good that we know that. But back in 2009, I was only just learning about it, and I was only just learning about human trafficking and modern-day slaves. And here I was sitting in a room with three survivors. And it was, it was such a, a, an absolute, like one of those moments in your life where you kind of feel like your world pivots. Do you know what I mean? One of those significant moments in my life. Because I'd never knowingly met a slave before. Have you ever knowingly met a slave before? Sat in a room with someone who is forced to do something against their will, whose freedom has been taken from them by another human being. And in 2016, the estimate is that there's 45.8 million people that are in some form of modern slavery in 167 countries in the world. Isn't that shocking? Now, the figure I discovered in 2009 was 27 million. Now, since 2009, there has been so much more publicity. There's been so much more um, in the media attention. Their um, governments are, are starting to take action due to, really, the the rise up from their own people, like in the UK, where, where it's been it's just a groundswell of people demanding that our government actually does something about this. And that's happened all around the world. But yet, it's still, we see it on the increase and not the decrease. Countries with the highest numbers include India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Uzbekistan. It's shocking, isn't it? When we think of our lives, you know, to think that another human being would take our freedom from us must be one of the most frightening things, isn't it? That someone would take our freedom and force us to work or to do unthinkable things for them. You see, and I could go on and I'm not actually because I'd have to get to Galatians and Jason's thinking, when are you going to get to Galatians? Because he knows what I'm like when I start talking about this stuff. I could easily speak for 50 minutes just about human trafficking and all the things that we need to do to stop it and all the things that lead to it and all that kind of stuff. Maybe another day I'll get a chance to talk to you about that stuff, but not today. You see, even though this is something that's close to my heart and something that breaks my heart, to be honest, most days I don't think about it. Most days, modern-day slaves are not on the top of my head or, or on my agenda at all. I tend to jump in the car, drive to work, maybe manage to meet up with a, a friend for coffee, go home at the end of the day, get stuck into the housework, be with my family, and to be honest, the last thing in my mind are the plight of 46 million slaves. It doesn't really bother me on a daily basis, I'll be honest. 
You see, I find that my personal comfort and my safety begins to be my priority rather than thinking about those who are enslaved in the world. So you're saying, Michelle, what has this possibly to do with Galatians? Well, in the, the past few weeks, we've been looking at Galatians, and, and Paul, he makes a startling statement about slavery in Galatians, and it just doesn't affect the 46 million people on the world that are actually in physical slavery right now, but actually what Paul talks about, it, it makes an impact on every single man, woman, child who has ever lived on this planet. Now, the slavery that Paul is talking about is spiritual in nature, but its impact is just as deadly. And you see, if the story ended here, then it would be rather depressing. But Paul says that something wonderful happened, something so powerful, so marvelous happened, that, that now that slaves aren't just merely set free, but they, we actually get to, be, we get to move from the slavery to sin into becoming sons and daughters of the living God. Yeah, that's good news this morning, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Galatians? Surprise, surprise, since we're in Galatians um, study at the minute. Galatians 3, verse 19, and then we're going to read through to, verses, to chapter 4, verse 7. It'll also be on the screen for those of you who want to follow along. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all in Christ, one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that, is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
Amen. So I want to quickly recap. Just up to now in Galatians, Paul has been speaking out against the Judaizers. And they were the Jewish Christian missionaries who are now telling the new believers in Galatia that the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is incomplete. They're saying that, that and this message is making Paul so mad that he calls down a curse from God twice in the first chapter. Okay, so Paul is not happy with this. Now let's take a wee step back for a minute, because sometimes it's easy to read the scriptures and we just put people into good guys and bad guys, don't we? You know, when we're reading the stories of, of Jesus, we just see, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they're the good guys, and the, and the Pharisees, they're the, the bad guys. And it'd be very easy to read this and do the same thing and just put these um, Jewish Christian missionaries into the bad guy camp. And we don't know a lot about them, but I want us to think from their perspective for just a moment. They, they were Judaizers, and what that meant is they were Jewish converts to the Christian faith. Now, these Judaizers, they could recite the law. They would memorize the law. They would teach the law to their children and all the other laws, which are about 600 of them. And as children, they would have been taught that this law was so important because this law was given to them, God's one true people, and so that the rest of the world would know that they were God's people, that, that that's what set them apart. Get it? That's what set them apart. So for them, the law was an incredibly important thing. It wasn't just something that they were told and taught and it didn't mean anything to them. It was incredibly important to them. So when they came to Christ, when they came to faith in Christ, they did not abandon the law. They found it really hard. In fact, they couldn't leave the law behind. And when they came to faith in Christ, they became Jews who were also Christians. They believed that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus keeping the law. Because for them, that's what kept them set apart. That, that's what distinguished them as God's people from the rest of the world. But Paul comes along to them and he says, what you guys are calling the gospel is really no gospel at all. This is not the true gospel of Jesus. Clear and simple, Paul says, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. There is no plus anything. There's no plus anything else. We come to faith. We come, salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. You're going to hear me saying those three things quite a bit this morning. Do you want to say it with me? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing else. Nothing else is added to it. So the obvious question that would have been raised by these Jewish Christians to Paul is, so what was the purpose of the law? Why have the law? Galatians 3.19 says this, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred to come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Paul says here that the law was added because of transgressions. In other words, the purpose of the law is to reveal sin in man. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin in us. Um, Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. God gave the law so that it would reveal our sin in us. 
The purpose of the law was to expose the sin within us. And that's a good thing. Now, you may be all sitting and going, Michelle, this is a bit heavy this morning, okay? Stick with me, right? We cannot, we cannot fully come to Jesus if we are not fully aware of our sin. You know that, don't you? We have to be aware of our, our brokenness. And not just our brokenness. Sometimes we use that word brokenness because in, a, in, a, in this day and age, we don't really like the word sin. Sure, we don't. We don't really like the word sin. So sometimes we use brokenness because it sounds a wee bit more soft and fuzzy, okay? Because you can say you're brokenness, and sometimes we think of brokenness, we think of the pain that other people have caused us. But actually, our brokenness is the pain that we have caused ourselves due to sin. You see, the law is like a mirror. The law is like a mirror that we look into and we see all our imperfections and we see our sin. We come face to face with our sin. We come face to face more than that with our need of a savior when we look in the law. I don't know about you, but I don't have a very good relationship with this thing. Maybe you do, and I hope you do. Um, I have a favorite mirror, mirror in our house. I don't think I've ever confessed this to the rest of my family, but there's a favorite mirror in my house because it actually makes me look a wee bit thinner. And the only reason I know this is because when I go shopping for clothes and I have to stand in front of those awful, I hate going shopping for clothes for this number one reason, I have to stand in front of this horrible full-length mirror with awful lighting, fluorescent lighting, and I have to face the reality of why I can't get into the jeans that I'm trying to buy. Whereas, see my mirror at home? Not a problem. I think I should just take that mirror with me when I go to buy clothes, and then it would be easier. What Paul is saying is that the law is like a perfect mirror. It's not like my mirror at home that makes me look better. It's a perfect mirror. It hides nothing, but it reveals everything. So when, we, when you look at the law, what you see reflected back is the true you. That's a scary thought. When you look at the law, what you see reflected back is the true you. It hides nothing, but it reveals everything. Let me, let me break this into an everyday context. When you're filling out your 2016-17 tax form, you might somehow conveniently forget to mention that extra income you got. You call it a white lie, the law calls it sin. When you speak angry words to your wife and kids when you get home from a bad day at work, or to your husband and kids, it's not a sexist thing, you call it stress, the law calls it sin. I know your life is hard right now. You've been in such a hard place. Life has just become more and more difficult for you and you've been drinking away your pain. You call it coping. The law calls it sin. When you gossip and pass judgment on your neighbor, you call it a prayer request. The law calls it sin. You see, the law, this perfect mirror, comes to your face and says, sin is sin. And while it's a terrifying experience to come face to face with the law and be exposed to your core, it is a journey that we must take on our way to Christ. We must take this journey on our way to Christ to fully realize our need of him, to fully realize how lost, completely lost we are without him. 
So not only was the law given to reveal sin in us, but Paul says that it was a prison that enslaved us. Galatians 3.23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And in 4.3, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. You see, what these Jewish Christian missionaries failed to realize was the law is a double-edged sword. There's a double-edgedness to it. They failed to realize that the lifeline that the law provided for them was also a binding chain of slavery around them. And Paul is pleading to them. He's saying, don't use the fence. Don't you see? Don't you see that the fence that you've put up to keep out the neighbor's dog is actually keeping you hostage in your own home? Don't you see that the metal bars that you've put on the window to keep the burglars out, that actually they're causing you to feel like you're a prisoner in your own home? Paul says that God gave the law in order to reveal sin in our lives. The law was a prison that enslaved us. And third, Paul says that the law was meant to be a temporary guardian until Christ. It's only temporary. A temporary guardian. 319, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to him, the promise referred, has come. 4, 1 to 3. What am I saying? What I am saying is that as long as heirs are underage, they are no different from slaves, although they own the whole estate. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by their fathers. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. The law had an incredibly important job. It was incredibly important, but it was only a temporary supervisor until the fullness of time when Christ was finally revealed. The law was never meant to be an end in and of itself. A guardian is never a father. A guardian is never a father. One of the reasons, okay, I'm going to publicly announce my irresponsibility, but one of the reasons why Jason and I could never make a will is because we honestly could never choose who, who we could hand over guardianship of our children to. We could never quite get round to that. We could never get our heads and hearts around that, that we would have to set people that would become guardians for our sons. Now, that's a good thing to do, by the way. Do it, definitely. We have now, but they're now Caleb's 1920. He could probably look after you boys. woo They'd love that. Mike is almost 18. It would only be you, Maddie. Oh, only Maddie would be left under that, but... You see, a guardian is never a father. A guardian will, will make sure all the boxes are ticked and they'll make sure they'll make wise decisions. You would only ever choose a guardian for your child who was wise, who had their best interests at heart, who was going to care for them, but they would never, ever, ever replace their mother and father, would they? Never, ever. So the law is a guardian, but the law is not our father. It is not our father. Galatians 4.4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Hallelujah. The bondage of law had lasted for 1,300 years, 1,300 years, and in given the law, God had a plan all along. This was God's plan all along. Jesus was always God's plan all along. It wasn't like he set the law in place and then thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is not working. Let's find a plan B. Jesus was always, always, always the plan. 
After 1,300 years of waiting, the time of fulfillment had finally come and everything in history was moving towards the day of days when God himself would become flesh and walk among us. You see, every time you look at your, if you have your phone with you, look at the date. I was just blown away again by this this morning when I was walking around my garden. I don't know if my neighbours heard me. I was getting very excited, pacing around the back garden, going over my talk. And this really, really, really excited me this morning. Look at your date. Look every time you see the year, 2017. What you're seeing is that mark in history between BC and AD. Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, everything is different now. When Jesus stepped into history, when he put this line in our actual physical history, whether people acknowledge God or not, every day, every time they look at the date, they're acknowledging this before and this after, and this moment in time when Jesus stepped into history. This moment when he stepped on this earth and everything changed. Everything changed. Nothing is the same. Nothing is the same because he came. Nothing. So the Jewish Christian missionaries, they would have saw this, Jesus coming, as a significant event. But they failed to realize that the coming of Jesus wasn't just significant, but it was the most decisive moment in history. The most decisive moment in history. There has never been a more decisive moment, and there never will be until he comes back and he brings everything into his fullness. But as we live and breathe in this earth, there will never, there's never been a moment in history like that moment when Jesus set foot on this earth or arrived as a baby. Probably didn't actually physically set foot, but you know what I mean. <clears throat> in the fullness of time, God sent the Son Jesus Christ to redeem us. Christ enters the story as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Jesus enters a room, everyone bows. Just sit with that for a moment. When Jesus enters the room, everyone bows. And the law is put in its proper place. When Jesus enters the story, the plot changes. When Jesus entered your life and when Jesus enters your life, there is no such thing as business as usual. Everything must change. Everything must change. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He walked up to the law and he says, in my perfect divinity and in my perfect humanity, I and I alone have fulfilled the law. It is finished. The chains are broken. The slaves are set free. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. And in the fullness of time, God sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. <clears throat> 4, 6 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, the spirit that calls out Abba Father. We are a people led by the spirit of God. We are not led by the world. We are not led by our sinful desires, although sometimes sin can feel like it has that grip on us. We are not led by the financial markets, although sometimes it can be quite terrifying to turn on the news and see what's happening around the world, or even more terrifying, look at your bank account. It's even worse. We are not led by our political affiliation. We should not be afraid because Mr. Trump is president. Honestly. We should not be afraid whoever becomes the prime minister in their next round of elections. We are not led by those things. We are a people led by the Spirit of God. 
Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27 says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God says, I want to make you a new creation from the inside out. The law, the mirror, if I can find it, the mirror tells us that something is broken. The law tells us that there's something broken, and that thing is called sin. But in order for you to be transformed into this fully brand new creation, then you're going to need my spirit in you. So I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees. I will do this in you because you can't do it yourself. You see, what the law was, was it was you, you, the mirror. It showed you where you were going wrong, and you were aware of your sin. But then Jesus comes, and he comes, and it's all about us wanting to follow him and to become like him because we love him. Not because we should not because it's a list of this is what you must do, but because this is what our heart longs to do. We long to be like him. That's what the Holy Spirit does within us. He leads us to become and to desire to become more and more and more like Jesus. We want to become more like him. But we can't do it on our own. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. You can't stop yourself from sinning. Have you ever tried on your own to stop from sinning? One of the things that, as a pastor, that really makes me sad, actually, is sometimes when you're talking to someone, and not just as a pastor, I'm thinking back to before I was a pastor when I was just an ordinary person, and uh, still I'm an ordinary person, but you know what I mean, before I had this, yeah, whatever, you know what I mean. And uh, one of the things that would break my heart is I'd be talking to someone who doesn't, hasn't yet fully accepted Jesus in their life. And they would start to tell me how they needed to fix their lives up first. And they would start to tell me about all the things they needed to do first before they could come to Jesus. And I'd be like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. You come to him and he helps you do all that stuff. You do not have to do it on your own. And that's probably one of the most heartbreaking things for me is when people get stuck there and they keep thinking, no, 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 I have to clean up my act first. If you just let me clean this all up first and then I'll come to Jesus. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness me, that's just the total wrong way around. It's the complete wrong way around. How, you know, if we could all fix our own lives and do all this, Jesus would never have had to come, would he? If we could have just stopped sinning on our own by trying really, 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 really hard, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But we need the Holy Spirit we need the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in us, and God the Father adopts us as his sons and daughters. 4, 4 to 7 says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. See, it's one thing to be set free from prison, to be set free from the slavery 
of the law and the slavery that sin brings, but it is a whole other thing to come out of prison and to be told that you now have a daddy to go home to. At the very heart of the gospel, at the very, very heart of this whole story from Genesis to Revelation, is about God creating one new people, united by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, where there is no distinction between race, social status, or gender. Um, and the creation of this new people culminates at this point where we get to call God Abba Father. Abba Father. These are deeply relational, intimate words reserved only for those who are closest to us, aren't they? The great gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is a relational message. And it is, open, it is an open invitation to everyone and anyone. Everyone, every single person that has ever walked this earth or ever will walk this earth has an opportunity to be fathered by God. To come into that close, intimate place with them where they get to call him Abba Father, which the closest translation we have of that is Daddy Father. Daddy Father. This relationship is not about religion, but it is all about love. This relationship between us and Father God is all about relationship, not self-help. It's all about our forgiveness. It's not about rules. There is grace. Because it is Jesus, not the law, that's our salvation. I want to finish up and I want to read a, 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 just a, a part of a book by Philip Yancey. And that's, the book's called What's So Amazing About Grace. And it tells this story. I'm just going to read through this story because it was just, it's powerful. There was a girl who grew up in a town in Michigan called Traverse City. Um, like many kids her age, she entered a phase in her life where there was a lot of argument and disagreements with her parents. After one particularly emotional fight, she did what every parent fears most. She ran away. She got on the first bus out of town and she ends up in Detroit. She feels a range of emotions, from fear to excitement and a hint of sadness. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges for a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things. Since she's underage, men pay a prim premium for her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. But after a year, when the first sign of illness appears, she's kicked out in the street without a penny to her name. She still manages to make a little bit of money on the street, but doesn't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. She now sleeps on the street. God, why did I leave? She whispers to herself. In desperation, she calls home, but she gets the answer machine. Dad, it's me. I was wondering that maybe, maybe I was thinking about coming home. I'm, I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus. 
until it hits Canada. On the seven-hour bus ride home, she prepares a speech for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me, she says. She rehearses the words over and over. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus finally rolls into the station. She checks herself in her mirror and wonders if her parents will even recognize her. Well, that's if they've even there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind during the seven-hour journey prepare her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal stands a group of 40 family members, brothers, sisters, great-aunts, uncles, cousins, grandmother, great-grandmother. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-washers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Shh, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Do you know this Abba father? See, that's a true story about an ordinary father, human father. But our father God, his love runs deeper. It moves mountains for us. See, some of you here today, outwardly you look great. People may even look up to you because you have a lovely family, a nice house and a good job. But inwardly, you want so much to know this God. And not just to know him, but to know him as your Abba Father. And some of you here today have been looking in all the wrong places for what you can only find in Abba Father. You've been filling your loneliness with so much relationships, with alcohol, with buying clothes, with buying stuff. You've just been trying to fill this void in your life with anything. But that space can only be filled by Abba Father. See, to know God in this intimate, personal way is available for each and every one of us. He is waiting for us right now. He is waiting and he has a huge sign saying, welcome home. Welcome home. Why don't you run into the arms of Abba Father today? Eyes closed, everyone, please.